And so yeah, that difficult question that we asked earlier. What is the hardest decision you've ever had to make? And maybe how did you do it? That might be the more important part. Like what's the process that you went through in making that decision? And did it turn out to be a good decision, right? What does the definition of a good decision even mean? So my husband and I, whenever we have to make a big decision, we're really not great at it as a couple. So we deliberate and, and sit in it and drag it out just longer than we should. And then eventually we just have to go get margaritas and just take the plunge and just make a decision. There's always margaritas involved in the final decision, right? Seriously, <laughs> you can't go wrong. <laughs> but that is very different than how I used to make decisions when I was a single person. <laughs> um, the last time I made a big decision to relocate, to pick up my life, um, was six years ago when I moved back to New York City after spending a year in California. And I was in this very like, hippie, grounded place. So it was, a, it was a spiritual decision, but really I was just going with my gut, making this decision to follow my instincts. Because I didn't have a job or an apartment or any real reason to move back to this ridiculously hard city to live in, right? I just knew that that's where my heart was calling me. And now, in hindsight, I can say that, you know, it, was probably the right decision because I think it's the only thing, and I hesitate to even say this because it's just such a churchy word, but I think it's the only thing in my life that I could say I actually felt called about. I felt called to come back to New York because in chronological order, I then met Jonathan, our lead pastor, his wife, Juby. They introduced me to Bobby, my husband. I met Ben. I committed to building this church. I joined the staff. Met all of you lovely people, got married, had my son, so on and so forth. So yeah, right? In hindsight, I would say it was a very good decision. But deciding to leave this community, that is a decision that I am not as confident about yet. And that's because I'm at the beginning of a journey, right? I don't yet know how the next few years are gonna unfold, what lies after that. And I think it's true that only with time are we able to really look back and decide whether a decision was a good one or not. So Dr. Utpal Dolakaya on Psychology Today, because I went searching around trying to find some definitions. His definition of a good decision is one that's made deliberately and thoughtfully, considers and includes all relevant factors, is consistent with the individual's philosophies and values, and can be explained clearly to significant others. I would add, with a few margaritas. But <laughs> because that, to me, I just kind of was like, oh, okay, sure, Doc, yeah, that sounds great. Like, it, that is, I guess, what a good definition is, but the process of, of going through a, a good decision, sorry, is, but I think the process of making that decision and going through that deliberate and thoughtful consideration and all, that is really, really hard. And as people of faith, I have to ask the question, like, where does faith come into this? Where does God come into this when we're trying to make really hard decisions? So we had our series planning day this past Wednesday. It's one of our favorite days of the year as a staff. It's a day that happens once or twice a year where we get together and we sit down and we have this really long day where we plan out all of the teaching series and outline the sermons for the next six months or so. And so we planned this series, Roots, back during our last planning session, which was, um, at the time, I had no idea would be one of my last sermons on staff. But I'm so grateful for how the Spirit was moving through that planning day, apparently, because I'm feeling challenged and blessed by the scripture that I was assigned to preach on for today because of the, that rhythm. You know, because sometimes in order for us to figure out where we're supposed to go when we're moving forward, we first have to look backwards and remember our roots, if I will. 
So we're going to go back. We're going to revisit all the people in the Bible who have led us directly to Jesus, who made a decision, good or bad, who said yes to being a part of God's larger story unfolding for humanity, unfolding in the world. And today we're starting right at the very beginning in the book of Genesis with the father of faith, the leader of nations, with Abraham. But this is his beginning, the very start of his journey, when he was still just an ordinary guy named Abram trying to make a decision, making a major life choice to follow God. All right, so last summer I preached about the book of Genesis, talked about the author and, and how we can think about all this, and I'm not going to get into any of that today. Today I just want to talk about the themes and the spirit of what we can learn, these kind of universal truths that we can gather from the stories that we find in Genesis, okay? And if you want to talk about the authorial intent and all that stuff, then you can go back to my sermon from last summer and we can talk more about that. I'd be happy to. But for now, what I taught last summer is that chapters 1 through 11 are the proto-historical narratives. They teach us about the human condition universally, right? Things that we all face throughout cultures and throughout the ages. And I think one of the major lessons that we can gather from it is that we all have the option to obey God or to go our own way. And when we choose to go our own way, we run the risk of having individual or family discord if we don't listen to the voice of God. We see this lesson throughout these first 11 books, okay? We got Adam and Eve disobeying, being kicked out of the garden. We see Cain's city after the murder of Abel. You get the development of the arts there. You get the development of weapons manufacturing. You see the roots of capitalism. You see the roots of sexism as women are defined as just pretty things. You see violence in cities and what human beings will do to defend their cities and their power and their wealth. You see human beings uh, unifying under architecture, which makes me think of things like Washington, D.C. and how we represent our power as people and as a nation. I think about cities and about places in the world where human beings all congregate and the policies and, and the behaviors that come out of that when we're all gathered in one place to restrict each other, to oppress the poor, to build up powers of system, right? To all of this, these systems of oppression, all of this stuff, Genesis speaks into. And then there's that flood, which kind of starts it all fresh, but then there's Noah, who instead of being obedient to the Lord, he plants a vineyard and gets drunk, which can you blame him? He and his family are the only ones left. I, you know, I get it. But we're not sure what happens with his wife and his son and all that, but we see how much discord can come amongst a family when we stop obeying the Lord. The roots of chapters 1 through 11 are actually not too much fun to be reminded of. In fact, it's kind of depressing. It makes it hard for me sometimes to have hope when I read through that stuff and I realize this is just, this is how humanity is. Like, this is how we always will be. What is even the point of trying? But the hope comes when you hit chapter 12. Because the book of Genesis then takes this sharp focus into the specific context of Abram and his family and what God wants to do through this one family and this one man of faith. The covenant that he's going to build, the Hebrew people, the nation that he's going to rise up, the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, that's going to follow us all the way through to the line of David and onto Jesus as God continues to progress and work with humanity to restore and renew the world. And it's a relationship that's continuing even through us today. We're going to talk a lot more about that, but for now we're going to start right here at the beginning with Abram, the ordinary guy, making a hard decision. The initial call from God to depart from society wasn't actually for Abram, it was for his father, for Terah, uh, and then it came in verses 11, uh, sorry, chapter 11, verses 31 to 32. Let's read that for a second. Terah took his son, Abram, his grandson, Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law, Sarai, the wife of his son, Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. 
Terah lived 205 years and he died in Haran. So let's consider that fact, right? Abram's dad was the one who initially got the call from God, but he doesn't make it all the way to Canaan. He, he dies before that happens. And so already we see that God is making generational considerations. We're already seeing how the story is gonna keep unfolding and take more than one generation to progress. We'll talk more about that. But the first thing I think that we really need to understand and note and kind of sit in is the fact that Abram is called to leave everything he knows behind. I got struck by that word, my people, as Mira was reading it for us. Because every time I talk about leaving here, I keep calling you guys my people. And so it really hit me that like, I understand what it feels like to leave your people. But to leave your country, to leave your, you know, your kindred, which is your people and your culture and the institutions that make you feel at home, your neighborhood that defines you. Especially as New Yorkers, we understand that. To leave your family, these are huge things. I've been sitting in all of this, this, this idea of identity, because that's what we're talking about here, this anthropological idea of these markers that form our identity as we grow and as we live. And I've been thinking about this stuff as I worry about the future, and um, I've, I've just been worrying about, like, where am I going to tell people I'm from once I move? Because I've lived in New York for the last 10 years. I feel like a New Yorker. And, you know, we all have that point of pride to say, oh, I'm from New York, especially from Brooklyn, because Brooklyn's so cool now. <laughs> wasn't when I moved to Bushwick six years ago. But, but, you know, you go traveling and you say that you're from New York and, and people kind of perk up and they want to know more. But I'm originally from the Chicagoland area, so to go move back to Indianapolis and tell people I'm from New York, they're going to go, ooh, ah, but truthfully, I mean, I feel like I'm moving back home. To move to Indiana feels like moving to the, you know, my own backyard. So I feel a little dishonest about, or like they don't really know who I am if I don't say I'm from the Chicago area. So I'm kind of freaking out a little bit about this. Like, where do I say I'm from? Because that's the stuff that helps us feel grounded, helps us feel whole and centered, right? And where you're from is a huge part of what you pass on to your posterity and how you teach your children and, and how you define yourself. I think about family, right? I think about heritage and what a huge part that plays in us. For those of you who have a really strong cultural heritage or maybe you're, you're an immigrant or your parents are an immigrant, you might understand this much better than I would. I have a, a very good friend who I've known since high school. She's Indian and I've learned so much from her because she always had these really strong expectations put on her to become a doctor and then to get married to a really good man who was also a doctor and that her family would find this man for her. And you know, I always felt like, oh, I'm so grateful to not have some of that pressure that she has. And then on the other side of it, like, it's so beautiful that she has such love and kinship and such culture and heritage that she, she can celebrate. And the truth is, her family did help her find a really great man. And they got over the fact that he's just a lawyer, not a doctor. <laughs> it's pretty awesome. <laughs> but I, I get it, right? That's a lot to overcome or a lot to deal with. And it's a huge part of your identity. And then there's this element of faith that I think we could ask as, as the people of God, as people of faith, which your faith should be running through every part of your identity, right? It makes me think about the women that I, I worked with when I organized the She Is Called conference back in May, which is a conference for women in church leadership. They shared so many stories about wrestling with who they are and what they were told by their culture and their families growing up. You know, as women in the church, you so often hear that you should stay at home, marry young, serve your husband, you know, stay quiet, don't teach or lead or, or pursue your passions because that's what God is calling you to. So to change your theology, 
to embrace the fact that you believe that men and women were created equal, equal when you grew up in a family or a church that told you otherwise, that's a really big deal. It requires an incredible amount of courage to turn away, to, to reject the things that the people you love might not approve of. And I know that there are a lot of people in this room as you've walked through the journey that our church has been on in the last five years of being a more um, affirming and inclusive community. I know, oh, the journey. Um, I know there are so many of you who can relate to that because of your surroundings or your walk through faith or your, the community that you're a part of who are maybe having your policies, your politics, your theology, your stance on things shaped differently from the families you grew from, grew up with. And maybe you're understanding that tension, that feeling, right, of how hard it is to, to identify and to, to break away from those things that so ground you and make you who you are. So I think we can all relate in one way or another to the struggle that Abram must have had in, in accepting this call and making the decision to leave everything he knew what we know, the little bit we know about Abram is that he was born in this big city of Ur to these heathen people, right? He didn't have religion. This God of the Hebrew God, um, he, he's a new one. Like this voice of God is a new one um, in the world and at that time. And so, you know, here's Abram at the age of 75. He clearly must have had some power and influence in his community because he had people around him. He had family. He had some success, I think. And he's going to go through a lot of hard things after he says yes to God, as we learn, as we keep reading through Genesis. But we don't know the details of how exactly God came to him in a revelation. We don't know the details of the decision that he had to make. There might have been a lot of fights with his wife, might have been a lot of restless nights and trying to decide what to do. All we know is that at a very old age, he chose to give up certainty for uncertainty. It's a theme in, in spiritual growth, right? To turn away from certainty and embrace uncertainty. To go out not knowing where this decision would lead him, not knowing whether it was a good or bad one to follow God. And at the time, Abram wasn't a, a, poet, a poet or a prophet or a king or a songwriter or any of those great things, but in the long list of biblical saints, Abram turned Abraham later, um, and he's called Abraham later on because of his spiritual journey. It's, he gets renamed when he's hit a point of maturity. God renames him. That's when he becomes the father of the faithful, the friend of God, as Isaiah calls him. And Abram, Abraham is not only this father of faith for the Christians, but also for the Jewish people and the Islamic people. This is, this is a big deal guy. This decision that he made to follow God is a big one for all of humanity. And still, I can't help but think, you know, I, I get that it's an archetype and it's, you know, this story, but still, I'm sitting in the universal truths of this story. So when I think about it as a human being and I sit here and I think, oh, well, he's the father of faith and oh, like, you know, I'm not ever going to be like that. I can't, I'm never going to be in that boat, right? But still, I think, well, how can I relate to this on the smaller scale? And still, the bottom line is, how does one make a decision to follow God in whatever context we're being called? I wonder what else is going on in this that would have actually motivated him to say yes to this unknown, under, misunderstood voice, right? This God that he really didn't have faith in yet. I don't really think it was faith motivating him. What I think, actually, is that it was ego. So in verses two and three, let's read that again, right? This is the covenant, the great promise that kicks off this whole story of the whole Bible. It says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. 
God is telling Abram, I'm going to make you a great man. I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'll bless you, make your name great. He's 75 years old, and maybe he's at the point where he's thinking, oh, wow, it would sure be great to have that. You know, He hasn't had any kids yet at this point. Maybe he's got some power and some influence and wealth, but this is an age where wisdom starts to develop, and, and maybe Abram's sitting there thinking, oh, yeah, that sounds good. Like, that's, that's something to leave behind. That's a legacy that I can get behind. Men are preoccupied with making their names great. God knows this about us. He knows the nature of humanity. And remember, there's Cain, there's Noah, there's so many other men in, in Genesis alone that show us men are, are, are preoccupied with making their names great. And so, yeah, here's Abram sitting in this, thinking, sitting in the context of his father's example, sitting in his culture, thinking, this is my chance to, to make something of myself, to leave something great for my family. You know, and I think about how God works through the egos of men and continues to do that. I think about how he works through Moses and so many other leaders and so many other stories throughout scripture that we'll continue to look at in the weeks ahead. And then I think about all the church planters I've met in the last five years. And I think, this is totally true. How often God snatches us or appeals to us through our egos, right? And maybe motivates us to do something that sounds really flashy and great at the time. And whether we want to admit it or not, it's ego-driven. But then there are two paths that we can go, right? We can continue to, be, to worship the ego and, and, and worship the prosperity gospel and kind of follow in that direction. Or we can be humbled by it. We can be humiliated by it. We can be refined by our faith and the journey through it. And I am privileged and grateful over the last five years to have been able to plant a church with a team of people who'd went down that road instead. Because I think what we've learned, surely, from these Bible stories and from our own lived experiences, that when you say yes to God, you can be sure that faith is going to be built through the journey, that it's going to be a journey full of struggle, a, full, a journey full of challenges and um, tests on your faith, certainly. But I don't know that Abram actually understood that in this moment, as he said yes and accepted this promise, this blessing from God. Because here he is at 75, right? And he leaves, and then at 86, he's going to have his first son, Ishmael, with his slave Hagar, and there's a whole backstory behind that. At 99, he gets circumcised. Oof, awful. At 100, he has his beloved son Isaac with his wife Sarah. I mean, there is a lot of life ahead of this man, and he, I can't imagine that he, he could have conceived of any of it when he said yes to leaving all of, of everything he knew behind. And then if we keep going through the Bible and we see into the book of Exodus, we look at how um, Abraham's descendants continue to multiply and they're enslaved in Egypt, but they keep growing and they keep growing and Moses frees them and they become the people of Israel and we keep on going and here's the line of David, da 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 da, -da. we keep going and there's Jesus, right? God himself coming through the descendants of Abraham. When we say yes to God, when we are blessed by God, it's because we're called to be a blessing to others. To be elected or chosen by God means that God chose me not so that I can get rich and be pretty and sit in my castle and enjoy you know, what I've been given, but so that I can use my skills and gifts in order to be a blessing to others. I'm a servant of God in order to benefit other people and to continue the progressive relationship and the story of God renewing and redeeming the world. But remember, all of this wouldn't have happened if, we, if Abram hadn't just said yes to getting up and leaving and putting it all behind. 
there's this book that I um, keep coming back to by Richard Rohr. It's called Falling Upward, A Spirituality for the Two Halves of Life. And it's this book that actually explains, in a spiritual sense, what we were talking about earlier, this idea of in the second half of life, we develop, we hopefully develop wisdom if we've lived our lives well. And Rohr says that this idea of leaving the home base and, and turning towards uncertainty is such an essential in every hero's journey. This is actually what he said. He said, the very first sign of a potential hero's journey is that he or she must leave home, the familiar, which is something that may not always occur to someone in the first half of life. In fact, many people have not left home by their 30s today and most never leave the familiar at all. If you've spent many years building your particular tower of success and self-importance, your personal salvation project, as Thomas Merton called it, or have successfully constructed your own superior ethnic group, religion, or house, you won't want to leave. Now that many people have second, third, and fourth homes, it makes me wonder how they can ever leave home. It speaks a little bit into the modern context for us, right? To leave, whether that's in a spiritual sense, a physical, a geographical sense, a theological way, to leave means that we will be put through challenges that will struggle, will feel immense loneliness at times, and that our faith will most certainly be tested and hopefully refined in the process, but it's often necessary in order for us to keep moving forward. Now, I'm obviously, of course, preaching that more for myself than anybody right now. But it's this archetype or this pattern that starts to emerge in scripture that we see over and over again. Something that the, uh, the mystical Christian tradition, which Roar belongs to, understands well, that we must turn towards the unknowing. To grow up psycho-spiritually, to, ma to mature spiritually, means we have to depart from our home base. And Jesus understood this. You know, he first went after the hippie by the river, John the Baptist, um, and then he left his family behind to go out into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. He understood that that's a necessary part, that leaving is a necessary thing before beginning his ministry and the work that he was really called to do. So how are you being called in your life? What decisions do you need to make to recommit yourself or to leave something behind? Maybe it's a spiritual thing, a physical thing, a geographical thing. I am not telling you all to move, please. But maybe it's something that you need to leave behind and some baggage or something that you need to turn away from. A new way of looking at a relationship or a new way of looking at God, a new way of looking at life. What is it that you need to turn away from right now? And how has your faith been shaped and shifted by the culture, the family, the influences around you? What are those identity markers that, that influence the decisions that you make? You know, none of these questions are easy. Nothing about change is easy, and nothing about spiritual maturity is easy either, but there is a hope in all of it. And I'm reminded that our God is always working things towards good, always working towards renewal. And when we say yes, we get to be a larger part of that story, of the good and the hope that's unfolding in our world every time we choose to turn towards our Lord. There's this poem that a friend shared with me this week that I wanted to close this out with. Um, it's, a, it's a poem written by Santos Perito. I'm sorry, that's the title of it. The author, the poet, is actually Me Hansen. And the poem is... Unavoidable, we are moving towards not the end of things, but the beginning. Beginning new loss, new gain. Beginning new ages, new faces, phases, stages. Beginning new love, new pains. Always in the becoming of, we are. Always beginning new change. Beginning new chapters, 
birthing new children that breed like lice, nitrous oxide, ecstasy atoms. The end is one stone throw away, and it's pregnant. Will you guys pray with me? Lord, I thank you for endings, and I thank you for beginnings. God, I thank you for the will that you've given us to choose, Lord. I thank you for the will that you've given us to choose love, Lord. I'm humbled and grateful for the ways in which you have taught me, God, and um, shaped my faith through this community, Lord. And I pray that we would be a community that is bold, bold in the decisions we make to turn towards you, Lord, even in uncertainty, even when we don't know where the path may lead us, God. I pray that as a church, you continue to push us to move towards uncertainty, to be able to sit in the mystery, God, to be the people that you're calling us to be, that you called us to be so many ages ago when Abram said yes. May we follow his example, Lord, each and every single day. It's in your name we pray. Amen.